0: Thank you.
1: Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we mispronounce French words and we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I really love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, for those who are supporting the podcast via Patreon, my patrons out there, thank you guys so much. Uh, if you're listening and you would like to support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description uh, wherever you're listening or, or watching this video, that would be huge. The more patrons uh, patrons I get, the more time I can spend on this podcast and justify spending time on this podcast. Uh, another way to support the podcast is to become a uh, subscriber on YouTube. You can turn on the notification bell there to get all the new episodes. I usually do about two a week. And then a uh, third way is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. That would be huge. Today's episode is uh, very special, like all of them, but this one's—I don't know how to say it—it's it's very, very, very special because I have with me Dr. Kasim Kasam, and we're talking about one of his books. Uh, is one of my favorites. It's called *The Possibility of Knowledge*, and uh, it it goes over how possible questions, how well, actually, the how possible question of knowledge: how is knowledge possible? And we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, transcendental arguments, and then Dr. Kasam's. Uh, unique approach to various problems in epistemology. So, without further ado, let's bring him in, Dr. Kassam, Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Parker.
1: Yeah. So, uh, as I was saying off-screen, and and uh, as we've been talking in email, uh, I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to uh, to talk about this work. I think you said it was it was like t- 15 years ago, like 2006 or something like that when it was when it was first published. And then uh,
0: published published in 2006, but I was working on it kind of before that. So it's actually really a a very long time since I last thought about this stuff. But no doubt you're going to refresh my memory. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um,
1: Well, it's one of it's one of my favorites because I love transcendental arguments. And as you said in the book, the I believe the book started as an exercise in transcendental uh, epistemology and then kind of kind of changed. Do you remember how how that happened?
0: Um, Yeah. So just to go a a bit further back. So when I was a grad student in Oxford, um, I was supervised by a guy called Peter Strawson. Um, So Peter Strawson is one of the great figures of 20th century British philosophy. Yeah. And and very much associated with this particular style of argumentation called transcendental arguments. And he uses transcendental arguments in his own philosophy. Um, and in fact, it was reading Strawson's work that not only turned me on to transcendental arguments, but actually turned me on to philosophy in the first place.
1: Wow!
0: wow. So it was a, it was a really you know huge deal to have him as my as my advisor, um, and my early work was was you know continued to develop these arguments in 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 his sort of tradition. Um, but by the time I started to to, to think about the possibility of knowledge. Um, I started to become a little bit more skeptical about these arguments. Mm -hmm. Um, I I started to feel that, you know, maybe they didn't really answer the question that lots of people thought they were supposed to answer. Um, And I mean, I wasn't the first, I mean, there's a very famous article by an American philosopher called Barry Stroud published in the 1960s in which he attacks transcendental arguments. Um, My take is sort of somewhat different from his, but um, I came around to thinking that, you know, maybe this isn't, in the end, the most convincing way yeah. of, of, of doing philosophy, even though it's massively influential. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I wanted to get back to uh, Barry Stroud in a little bit and, and some more on transcendental arguments, but m- maybe uh, as we set up this conversation, um, can you recount for us like how questions and how possible questions and, and maybe what's the difference between the two?
0: Yeah. So, so, so here's an example, right? So supposing... Um, uh, I ask you, how do you make beef Wellington? Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, that's a request for a recipe, fundamentally, or a request for a technique. Right, so there's something that I want to do, and I want to know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, or I could ask you, um, how? What's? How do I get from London to Paris? So again, um, a question about how you do something. What are the means by which you do something? But now, supposing I ask the question. Um, um, how is it possible to make Beef Wellington?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Now, that sounds like a, that's a kind of weird question, right? But, I mean, <laughs> the implication there seems to be that there's something problematic or difficult about making Beef Wellington, something that makes it look as though it shouldn't be possible to do it. Right? Yeah. So, you know, if you go to a michelin style restaurant and you, you, you know, you're eating this unbelievably elaborate dish, you look at it and you just uh, – obviously, you know someone made it. But if you say, well, how is it possible to do something like this – you know, the implication is that it, it, it's it's this is something difficult. You know, there are obvious obstacles in the way of doing this. So that, I think, is the kind of general idea. So how possible questions are, as I call them, obstacle dependent. Mm-hmm. So when you say how is such and such a thing possible, you're implying that there's an obstacle that makes it look as though it wouldn't be possible or shouldn't be possible. And then you're asking how, nevertheless, is it possible?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the uh, obstacle dependence there. That's that's really helpful. Uh, um, okay, so there's a, a famous, you know, problem of the criterion with uh, from, from uh, Chisholm, and he goes over Methodism and Particularism, and uh, this is just a random one that I've been thinking about, but in my mind, if someone's asking a how-possible question, they're coming from like a, a Particularist uh, standpoint. They're saying it's not... Um, uh, it's not like uh, that that it's possible. But but how how is it possible, given that we have this knowledge, given that we have this thing? Is that is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's helpful to think about the kind of historical origins of this sort of yep. question. Right? Sure. So so how possible questions are associated with Immanuel Kant right? mm-hmm. so in the critique of pure reason published um, in the 18th century he asks a whole series of how possible questions. So examples of how possible questions that Kant asks are, how is mathematics possible? How is natural science possible? How is metaphysics possible? So let's take the mathematical case yeah. uh, as an example. Now, when, when Kant asks, how is mathematics or mathematical knowledge possible? Of course, he's assuming that it is possible, right? Okay. Because he's assuming that you know math exists, that there are mathematical truths and that we know some of them. But he also has a certain view about the nature of mathematical knowledge, which makes it really hard to see how human beings could have it. Right. That's that's the basic problem. So, um, so he thinks that mathematical knowledge is what he calls synthetic a priori. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't need to get get too much into the details of that. But synthetic a priori knowledge is a is a is a kind of weird sort of knowledge
1: because because it, Mathematics, uh, mathematical knowledge is it's necessar- necessarily true, but it's not like true by definition. It's not a priori. Exactly,
0: exactly, right. Yeah. So, so, um, so his thought is that it's synthetic, meaning it's it's uh, it's not a definitional or conceptual or analytic truth. It's not like saying all bachelors are unmarried men, which right. you can come mm-hmm. to know just by analyzing the concepts. So he thought um, the internal angles of a triangle add up to one hundred and eighty degrees, which he thought was true. Uh, that's not something that you can come to know just by uh, conceptual analysis. So that's why he thought it was synthetic. But he also thought that mathematical um, uh, truths were necessary truths that you could come to know independently of sense experience. Mm-hmm. So that's what he meant when he said that they're a priori. So his concern was, well, this, this, this. Now this seems really strange, right? Because if if somebody asked me, well, you know, how do you know there's a computer screen in front of you? Well. By using my senses, right? So, yeah. so my knowledge that there's a computer screen in front of me—that's um, empirical knowledge, not a priori right knowledge. How do I know that all bachelors are unmarried men just by analyzing the concepts? Right. But now you have a kind of knowledge that you can't acquire by conceptual analysis, but you also acquire, can't acquire by using your senses. Um, so, how on earth is such a thing um, uh, possible? Does that, that, uh, that was the problem? That was that was a problem. So, can't. Um, assumed that mathematical knowledge is synthetic a priori mm-hmm. um, he assumed that synthetic a priori knowledge is not a kind of knowledge that is easily or obviously available to human beings
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and and then that generates the question right well given the obstacles to synthetic a priori knowledge how is such knowledge possible for us that's yeah. the how that's the, you know that's the how possible question yeah um and then that ge- that sort of gener- you know that sort of generalizes so, so my thought you know, when I wrote that book was that was that well you, you know he's on to something here, which is that um, for any given kind of knowledge, whether it's synthetic a priori knowledge or even ordinary sensory knowledge, philosophers have, have, have traditionally thought there are obstacles that stand in the way of our acquiring these types of knowledge. you know that's the problem of skepticism fundamentally. Right. Right. So, so, so skeptics say you can't have these types of knowledge, and then the, the, you know, you, you or I might say, well, yes, we can, but then the skeptic is going to come back and say, all right, well, tell me, tell me how such a thing is possible given the obstacles that I've identified.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's that's really helpful. I also noticed you went. Uh... So many of the people who I read uh focus on kant 's transcendental deduct deductions, and then they they try to say well that that's uh you know uh, transcendental arguments and they go with with peter Strawson uh who who try to you know repersonate them and I thought it was really interesting that you found your uh your multi levels approach in Kant himself, and you said you know not as many people have focused on kant's how possible questions for for whatever reason we we latch on the transcendental deductions, but I thought that was so interesting that this is a constructive work but it's also you're you're drawing out something historical from kant himself uh in the, from the first critique i thought that was fantastic
0: well well, well thanks i mean I, I remember remember being very struck actually when i when i first started to work on that book by the fact that on the one hand you know here you have one of the great works of western philosophy yeah. um the critique of pure reason which is a organized around a series of how-possible questions. I mean, in the introduction to the critique, Kant lists a whole bunch of how-possible questions. And mm-hmm. It's clearly exercised by these questions. And an, an enormous amount has been written about the critique of pure reason, but very little at that time had been written about the nature of how-possible questions. I was quite really quite surprised about that. People talked about all sorts of other methodological issues in Kant, uh, the nature of transcendental arguments, the nature of a transcendental deduction, or transcendental proof, and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. very few people didn't actually focused directly on how possible questions. I mean, one, an example of, of a philosopher who did say something useful about them, though briefly, was Robert Nozick. Yeah, um, he had a bit to say about them. John McDowell had a bit to say about how possible questions, um, and a, histor- a philosopher of history called William Dre talked about <laughs> how possible questions. But they were the only three sources. Um, that that I could find, um, yeah. and and that just struck me as odd. You know, why hadn't people really thought about these, you know, these questions in their own right and in relation to to Kant? So that's really what I was trying to do in the book. Yeah. So
1: so you le- um you develop uh, instead of transcend uh, transcendental argument or deduction, whatever we want to call it. You you come up with this multi levels approach, which which you do find uh, in Kant, which I thought was fantastic. But level one is means. Level two is obstacle removal. And then level three is identifying enabling conditions, and we can talk about those. But um, for Kant, his at least when it comes to mathematics, I believe he took a, a level one response, and he said, uh, "We're going to find a mean." So, so it's not just uh, our our reason and our uh, sense perception, but there's a third there's a third way that you're missing, and it's I don't really fully get it, but construction in pure imagination is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So. So, when Kant thought about so let's just say geometry as, as, the, as, as the example, right? So when okay. Kant talk, talked about geometry, I mean Kant's conception of geometry was basically Euclidean. Now, obviously geometry has moved on since euclid 's time since Kant's time. Mm-hmm. But the key Euclidean insight that Kant was really exercised by was the fact that geometrical proof in Euclid involves the use of diagrams.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, so so uh, so his que- so, so what you do in, in Euclidean proofs is, is that you know you literally draw a triangle and then draw, you know, manipulate the image in various ways to 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 prove that this angle plus this angle plus this angle is equal to this angle plus this angle plus that angle. Right? so that's how Euclidean proofs work. Um, and you can do these, you can draw these diagrams. Can thought either on paper um, or on a whiteboard if, if they had such things in his day. <laughs> Um, or you can do it in the imagination. Um, and, and, and so he thought, well, now this is really interesting, right? So supposing you, you, you carry out these proofs in the imagination, so that's what Kant called pure intuition, right? So mm-hmm. you imagine a triangle, and you imagine performing various operations on this triangle. Right? Um, and so his question was, well, but how does that tell us anything about the geometry of the physical world? Right. How do you I mean, how do you make the leap, the transition from um, what you might call the geometry of of imaginative space to the geometry of physical space? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you so you know, doing these Kantian constructions, you're sort of learning something about, as it were, your the geometry of the human mind, the geometry yeah. of what figures human beings can can, you know, can construct. Um uh, but you're you drawing conclusions from that about the geometry of physical space? So how is that possible? How could you make that transition? And Kant had had a kind of ast- astonishing answer to that question, right? And the answer was idealism. Right. So it's only because the physical world is in some sense dependent on the human mind that learning yeah. about the human mind is a way of learning about the physical world. Right. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I mean, that's an incredible it's a dazzling for insight i mean it, i don't believe it of course but it's true <laughs> that the physical world is dependent on the human mind but it's a really cool way of addressing you know this this problem right he couldn't see any other way that we could we could have this special insight that we have into the geometry of physical space using the techniques the geometers since euclid have actually um have actually used yeah. uh and and so here you see lots of different elements of kant's philosophy coming t- you know coming together his philosophy of mathematics his theory of how possible questions and ultimately his metaphysical theory right i mean you know his uh, he, the particular version of idealism that he yeah. that he um, endorsed Tr-
1: transcendental idealism as, as people have called it since
0: then yeah yeah so that's that's a la- you know that's a label transcendental I- um, idealism right
1: yeah. so um t- we don't have to spend too much more time on kant but I know some people have have tried to hit him on this point that uh, transcendental idealism. Uh, if 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 you're just doing uh, constructive construction in pure imagination, why would my triangle be the same as as yours, Doctor Kassam? Like, how, what what's the? There's no like pre-formation theory or or anything like yeah, that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so 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 again, this is very interesting. So um, so Kant is certainly interested in in as it were, the human mind and the structure of the human mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not particularly interested in um, the difference between one human mind and another human mind, yeah. right? So so he, I think he takes it that all human beings in virtue of human beings have the same basic kind of cognitive structure.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, and what he's one of the things he's doing in his philosophy is investigating the structure of the human mind. Yeah. Um, and it's very striking if you if you wind the, the philosophical clock forward to our, you know, to the present day. I mean, one thing that philosophers today, maybe even ordinary people think about sometimes is how can you be sure that other minds yeah. are similar to yours? Or how do you know that there are minds apart from your own mind? Um, and it's very striking that that this problem of other minds, which is which is, you know, now a sort of epistemology 101.0 problem just doesn't figure in Kant's philosophy at all right there yeah. is no problem of, of, of other human minds for Kant I mean there is a problem about you know what what if anything can we know about the mind of God for yeah. example. Um, mm-hmm. and that you know that and, and of course he thinks that we can't understand what the mind of God would be like except that it's going to be very different from ours so there's that yeah. you know there's that in Kant but uh, yeah so you're on your point about well you know, how can we be sure that that your imagination is like my imagination? I mean, Kant's answer to that would be, "Well, you're both human beings, aren't you?" Yeah,
1: that makes sense. Okay. Um, so, so getting back to the multi levels approach, uh, you say, and I'm, I think I'm probably paraphrasing here, but a good answer to how possible questions uh, will identify a means by which a particular kind of knowledge is possible, a means response, it will remove obstacles to the acquisition of knowledge by the proposed means. And that's through either obstacle dissipating or obstacle overcoming, and it will identify the enabling conditions for knowing, uh, by the proposed means. So means really is important, and it and it ought to be number one. Uh, I wonder if we can um, if we can lay this out further by considering other minds and your your uh, answer to the problem of other minds. Hmm. Mm.
0: So uh, so, supposing the question is, how is it possible for me to know what any other uh, any other person is thinking mm-hmm. or feeling how is that possible um so um uh, if it's a how possible question there must be an obstacle that generates the question mm. okay so so uh, the obstacle is kind of fairly obvious right i mean the, the natural thought is that look people's thoughts and feelings and desires and emotions are beneath the surfaces that we can see, right? Yeah. So I can see your physical body, I can see your face, I can see your facial expression, so. But, 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 you know, what you're thinking right now? What do you think of this interview as we're doing it? Hmm. I mean, for me, well, I don't have any direct insight into that. Right. So, so, so the problem of other minds then is, 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 you know, how can we ever overcome this apparent barrier to our knowledge of minds other than our own? Yeah. You know, the hiddenness of other people's mental states. Um, so to answer that question, I mean, you need to identify a means of knowing the mind of another person right now. But yeah. I mean, there may be a whole a lot of different means that can be um, can be thought of. So, so in the book, I talk about um, perception as a possible source of other minds. You know, so the thought is that, well, sometimes you can just see that someone else is angry or see that they're depressed. Right? So that would be one you know, one possibility. Or you might think of something like empathy as a source of knowledge yeah. of other minds, right? Or, you know, no doubt there are, you know, no doubt there are lots of other other possibilities. Mm-hmm. So there you have the means. And then for each of these means, there are going to, you're going to have to show how these means overcome the obstacles to knowledge of other minds, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the challenge for someone who says, well, you can just perceive someone else's mind is to say, well, how does that overcome the obstacle that, their inner states are really inner right but they're, they're, or, you know, or sure
1: deception or something right like, yeah, we, like I, I could make count. it look like i'm enjoying this but inside i'm terrified yeah. or hating it or yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean so so i i you know i only perceive your surfaces your huh. outer surfaces and maybe there's nothing in there at all right or maybe what's going on in there is very different from what i from what i believe so so that's one sort of problem for the um for the perceptual approach if you think about empathy you know, so empathy is where I sort of use my imagination to get into your head. Um, yeah. well, well, how do I do that? Like, how do I know that what I'm imagining is really what's going on? Right? So, so, the, so, 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 those are some of the obstacles that need to be um, that, that need to be uh, dealt with. And you can deal with an obstacle in two different ways. Either you can deal with it by saying, "Look, the thing that you think is an obstacle just isn't an obstacle." Yeah. Right? Um, so you, so so you might say, well, it's actually, you know, it's actually not true that your inner life is, is what with is really inner, right? That your uh, it's not true that your states of mind are not visible on your outer surfaces.
1: And this would be this would dissipate the obstacle, right? Dissipate. This would be it. an
0: obstacle. Dissipa- yeah. So so the, so this would be the you know the view of someone. Um, who says you know, the prob- what really causes the problem of other minds is this picture of the inner and the outer as separate domains. Yeah. But that when you think of them as, in- as interpenetrating, so this is something that lots of, I think, Wittgenstein-inspired philosophers believe, if you mm-hmm. think of them as interpenetrating, then the problem just shouldn't be posed, or can't be posed in the way that philosophers have traditionally posed it.
1: And that's his. That would, is that, that his private that, language uh, argument? Beat the a, box. Would,
0: yeah, I mean, it would be a sort of application of the private, okay. private language argument. Okay. Um, and the other possibility is to say, all right, look, let's agree that you know the you know that the, the outer and the inner are separate, um, but you know nevertheless we can come up with some way in which perception um, tells us what's going on. Um, on the inside, right? yeah. so so you might, for example, think that that you know, well, perception actually all involves involves inference, um, and that and that actually when the when when the mind when you perceive the world around you, um, there there are always inferences going on. Um, mm-hmm. You infer the shapes and sizes of things. You infer that you know the things that you look at have backs. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, so do you know? So, do you see the thing in front of you as a three dimensional object? Well, yes, but seeing it as a three dimensional object also involves, um, your brain constructing from the image, yeah, um, you you know, uh, stuff that, um, uh, isn't present in a two dimensional image. Mm -hmm. So, so in the case of other minds, in the case of perception, you might want to run a a line that, that that's similar to that, um. So, so uh, the thought is that 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 you know, in each of these cases, you identify the means you 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 dissipate or overcome obstacles to knowing by those means, um, and then you ask the kind of the third question. You get to level three, and so you say, "Well, look, supposing everything you've said so far is true, it is possible to acquire knowledge in these ways by these means. What makes it possible? Right? What else must be the case yeah. for knowledge to be acquirable in that way? What are the background?" enabling conditions that make it possible right, for you to acquire knowledge in this way. And and the, and the background enabling conditions are going to be all, you know, many, many different sorts. Some of them are going to be background physical or physiological conditions. Right? So, yeah. I mean, one thing that you might think is that, look, for human beings to acquire perceptual knowledge in the way that they acquire it, uh, um, their brains have to have certain capacities, um, certain dimensions um, uh, that has to have a certain processing power. Right. So, so, so those are going to be examples of background enabling conditions for, uh, uh, for, for for knowing. I mean, those are the not the sorts of conditions that Kant was interested in, but that's yeah. an example of a of a background enabling condition for acquiring knowledge yeah. by a particular means.
1: Okay, and so, and uh, you mentioned that the. In the book, you mentioned the explanatory minimalist wants to stop at two, but how you demonstrate how important it is that we continue on to three, and we look at these enabling conditions. And so, for for my audience, who uh, many many of whom uh, love transcendental arguments, they're going to say, "Well, that kind of sounds like you're looking at necessary conditions." You're, you're you're you are doing transcendental deductions. Can you help us think through the the difference? I, I love the way you you, uh, you parse out the difference between enabling conditions and a necessary precondition or condition
0: yeah yeah so um so, so the thought is something like this that that um um it might be possible to acquire knowledge in a given way right and then certain things must be true for you to acquire knowledge in that way mm-hmm. right but it doesn't follow that those things being true is a necessary condition for you to have that knowledge at all yeah because there might be other ways of acquiring that knowledge yeah right? uh, with with their own necessary conditions right so mm-hmm. there might be n- necessary conditions for acquiring knowledge by perception, necessary conditions for acquiring knowledge by testimony, necessary conditions for acquiring knowledge um you know by empathy or, or whatever one one comes up with um and, and 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 so you don't have this idea of general necessary conditions for uh, um, for empirical uh, or a priori knowledge, which is what Kant um, was was after. I mean, the other thing that I, I I did try to emphasize in the book is that if your question is how is knowledge of such and such a kind possible, what I need to do is simply to explain to you how that kind of knowledge is possible. Yeah, and I do that by by showing you, by giving you means by which it's possible. Mm-hmm. But the means by which something is possible don't have to be necessary conditions for its possibility, right? Because right. there might be more than one means by which something is possible. Yeah. So the focus on necessary conditions seems a little bit odd if your starting point is how is such and such a thing um, uh, possible. I mean, the necessary conditions for knowing. I mean, goodness, that's that's a tough, <laughs> that's a tough one, right? I mean, right. who knows what? Who knows what they are? Yeah. Yeah but we certainly know are able to identify various means by which knowledge is possible and we're able yeah. to deal with specific obstacles to knowing by those by those means that's what happens in philosophy 101 classes, right? right so but if somebody says oh but you can't really you haven't really answered the question unless you have some completely general account of 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 the necessary conditions under which knowledge is possible such that knowledge wouldn't be possible at all Without those conditions, I mean, uh, that is, I mean, that's a really tough one, right? I mean, the, the, yeah. the obvious one is, well, there wouldn't be knowledge if, if there aren't subjects of knowledge. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would be an example of an of a necessary condition. That's what that's the, that's the Cartesian cogito, right? That's yeah. I mean, so account thought in effect, my existence is a necessary condition for me. Is a necessary condition for me to think, and that seems right. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, Kant wanted something a bit more ambitious b- ambitious and substantive than that, and that's much more problematic, I think. Um,
1: you keep anticipating all my questions, which is great. I was going to bring up the cogito as well. But so um, for, for those who might be getting lost real quick, um, you, you give this example uh, again and again. And it's really helpful, concrete example of uh, traveling from London to Paris and uh i forgot the time and i'm uh american swine so i actually don't know how close those two i think they're pretty close but you talk about traveling on a on a railway i think yeah. and um can you can you lay out can you help us with this concrete example of uh, a yeah. difference between the necessary conditions and and yeah. uh yeah yours
0: yeah yeah so, so supposing i run into a friend in central london right and they say um i need to be in paris in three hours how is that possible Right, so I say to them, look, get on the, hop on the Eurostar. Right, the Eurostar will get you, in, will get you to Paris in two and a half hours. Okay. So what what have I done? I they've they've asked me a how possible question. Right? So for them, they ask they ask the question in that form because they can't see how they can make it to their dinner reservation in three hours' time. Right, seems like really difficult.
1: There's an obstacle. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's an obstacle. Right. <laughs> uh, um, the clock is ticking. Okay, so what have I done? I've shown them. I've given them. I've offered them a means of getting from London to Paris in under three hours. Get the Eurostar, right? Now, um, is catching the Eurostar a necessary condition for getting from London to Paris in three hours? Well, no, right? You could also get from London to Paris in under three hours by catching a plane. Yeah. Right. So, um, uh, so, supposing somebody said, okay, so you've got. A plane and a train together, are they jointly, do they exhaust the possibilities? Well, no, right? I mean, for all I know, Elon Musk has a rocket that could do it right. in under three hours, right? I mean, uh, in a way, it's all that's all completely irrelevant, right? You don't want to know, you know, if you ask me how is it possible to do this, you don't want to know whether the way I'm telling you is the only way to right. do it. What you want to know is, is it a way of doing it, a way of doing it that's available to me right now? Yeah. Okay, so 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 catching the Eurostar is a means of doing it. And if you mm-hmm. say to me, supposing you supposing you had no idea, supposing you you've just woken up from a long sleep, and you say to me, What is the Eurostar? And I say to you, Well, it's a train. And you say to me, I don't really get it. How how can a train get from London to Paris? Isn't there, isn't there like, you know, the English Channel? Isn't there like 17 miles of water between Britain and Europe. So I said, so I said to you, okay, he, uh, here's a piece of news for you. There's a tunnel, <laughs> right? It goes under the ocean. Okay. So the, so what would previously have been an insuperable obstacle to getting from London to Paris by train is no longer an insuperable obstacle. Right. So now I've dealt with the obstacle. I've So I've recognized the obstacle as, 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 is in a sense genuine, right? Because, you know, uh, relative to your assumption that that trains can't go on water, that looks like a real obstacle. But I've dealt with the obstacle by saying, oh, there's a tunnel." Okay. Um. Now you might say to me, "But what makes it possible for um, me to get from London to Paris in a tunnel? What are the enabling conditions for that?" Well, I mean, the enabling conditions for that are that, well, you know, we human beings have the technology to drill under the ocean. And build the tunnel, right? So there's a whole mass of technical or technological enabling conditions yeah. for you know for this for this journey. So there you have the three stages, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the initial question. I've then I've answered the question by giving you means. Um, <clears throat> I've dealt with an obstacle to uh, to those means, and I've said something about the conditions under which means like that are means for achieving what you want to achieve. But at no point in our conversation have I said anything about necessary conditions right right? and if you say to me um, how do i get from london to paris in three hours if i say to you well now let's sit and think about the necessary conditions for doing that right you'd probably think i'd lost my mind and (laughs) you'd probably think i've got a dinner date in three hours right i don't want to sit here and discuss with you what are the necessary conditions for doing it i want to know how do you do it right tell me how i can now do it yeah Uh, and i've told you i catch the Eurostar.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's that was such an interesting point to draw because you you might say well uh if you're looking uh, from a transcendental argument perspective and you're looking for necessary conditions well a necessary condition of you going from from London to Paris is that you exist so now we have to talk and it's it's so broad as to be just not helpful in this context yeah yeah
0: yeah so if you so if you're worrying that the clock is ticking and that you're kind of late for your appointment and I say to you. Listen, I've got some really exciting news for you. I've identified a necessary condition for you to get from London to Paris in three hours. And the necessary condition is you exist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, true, but supremely unhelpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, that's, it's just not what you're after. Right? What right. you're after is, is, is means. And the means need to work. They don't need to be unique. They don't have to be exclusive. Right. And this deals with something else that's kind of quite important that that I mean, of course, in a, in a, in this particular example, the means that I identify are, of course, going to be the means that are available relative to the way the world is now relative to a technology yeah. as it is now. But I mean, you know, 100 years time, if yeah. any of us still exists, um, there may be completely other means of getting from uh, from London to Paris. Right. Yeah. So in under, in under three hours. So. Um, <laughs> no one can say for sure that you know you know even if they list all the means that we can think of that those are going to be a, that's going to be a complete list so you can't then be you can't then say it's a necessary condition that you use one of these one of these listed means yeah because there may be others that we haven't thought of
1: i'm still i'm still holding out for uh thought teleportation so we'll see if that, that right. Yeah,
0: well, exactly. Right. So, so If that, you know, so, you know, if, 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 if uh, Star Trek ever comes true, right, mm-hmm. then uh, there's going to be lots of other possibilities. Right. Uh, you can just step into the teletransporter.
1: Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Kassam, um, uh, are enabling conditions then? Are they more, are they picking out sufficient conditions then? Not, not, um, or, or is it something altogether, altogether different from necessary and sufficient?
0: I, I think they just enable, I, I I just don't find it helpful to think in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. They just okay. they just conditions the fulfilment of which makes something possible. Right? So, okay. right, so the existence of the of the of the Channel Tunnel is an enabling condition for you to catch a train from London to Paris.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That seems right. It, it's, okay. it's, it's what enables you to do it. But is the existence of the Channel Tunnel a necessary condition for you to get from London to Paris? Well, well, no, right? There are lots right. of other ways of doing it. Is it a necessary condition for you to do it by train? Well, yeah, at the moment, right? But who's to say that one day they won't build a bridge, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, 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 saying that some, you know, that the fulfilment of certain conditions enable you to do such and such a thing is different from saying you couldn't do it. It well, it's different from saying that such a thing wouldn't be possible if those right. conditions were not. Um, were not fulfilled
1: yeah okay yeah that's really helpful so so getting back to um to the uh problem of other minds i, I wore one of my favorite shirts for you here to android's dream of electric sheep right and yes. uh yeah yes. and, and just the the idea of uh you, you talk about this in the book but the idea of zombies and uh for, for the idea of philosophical zombies uh is very weird for people on the outside uh, who haven't who haven't thought about this and for some people on the inside as well, but I think the the problem of uh strong AI or um artificial general intelligence as they call it now kind of can help motivate this problem of philosophical zombies um what that that seems like an obstacle how how is that obstacle overcome in in the problem of other minds uh how how do we yeah how do we overcome that you might be a sophisticated sophisticated android
0: yeah yeah so so i mean what i i don't think i really addressed this pro- problem adequately or indeed at all in the book and mm-hmm. what i think about it now is kind of somewhat different okay so um so one way in which we acquire knowledge is is by something called inference to the best explanation mm-hmm. so you have a range of different explanations and we pick but we pick the one that that's that's the, the best one, and we need to, we need to say what makes bet the best the best. But it's it, it's, yeah. it's it's a way of acquiring knowledge. So, I mean, so so if I if 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 the question arises, well, what you know, what assurance do I have that you have an inner life that's anything like my inner life um, that you feel pain, you know, if someone steps on your toe do you feel pain well the assurance that i have is that well you know physiologically you're very similar to me you're a human animal you have a brain you have a central nervous system um so it does that mean that it's logically impossible for you to Mm. uh, have no inner life well it's not logically impossible but but the best explanation is that is that human beings have these shared um uh, psychological uh, characteristics that's not skeptic proof, right? So, that, so right. if you're trying to argue with a skeptic about, about other minds, then that's not an answer. But I don't really think we should be worrying too much about um, other minds' skepticism of the traditional philosophical form. I mean, the, the thing that strikes me now is very odd is that when philosophers talk about the problem of other minds, they mean um, how do you know or how can you be sure that other human beings have inner life?
1: right
0: that's not the problem of other minds the real problem of other minds is it really pertains to other animals Mm -hmm. and 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 to other 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 beings right so if you think about social robots um uh, do sophisticated social robots have have minds well that's a really kind of interesting you know and substantive question Mm -hmm. or if you think about um if you think about other creatures like bats or an octopus right um now in the, in that case i mean it seems to me to be overwhelmingly plausible to say that there's mentality of some sort there but it's mentality of a sort that is utterly different from yeah. from ours so so our ability to grasp what is going on in the mind of an octopus is is severely limited right because yeah. their physiology is utterly different you know, utterly different from ours. Now, those are those are kind of those are real questions. So, if you're thinking about you know the morality of, of eating meat, for example,
1: yeah.
0: um, of killing cows, and uh, you know, to to, to for beef, I, I mean, clearly, a lot hangs on whether you think they have mentality, and if they do, what kind of mentality they have. Right. So yeah. you you know, if you think that they are, they have sophisticated mental lives that they, have, they form bonds with other cows, that they are capable of suffering, of pain, um, uh, of pity, of, of fear. The, the morality of killing these creatures to eat them is going to look very different from if you yeah. think that they don't have mental lives or their mental lives are much more primitive.
1: Yeah. Um, and method, yeah, and the method, yeah, and the method used to to um, yeah. kill them as well. If if that's something that you decide to do, so in, in describing mentality here, do you have something stronger in mind than just consciousness? Because you think of you know uh, Nagel's uh, nineteen seventy four paper. What it, uh, is there something it's like to be a bat? Certainly, they're conscious. I I, I think I think most of us would want to say yes, they're conscious, and yes, it was fantastic of him to pick a bat because it's so different than us, but yeah. similar. But but mentality, you're saying something above and beyond just the baseline of yeah. conscious.
0: Well, yes. I mean, the fact that a creature has that baseline consciousness is certainly of some relevance to how sure. we to how we treat it. But um, certainly, if you're thinking about higher animals, um, I mean, what's striking is that they have actually very sophisticated yeah. mental lives. So so um, I mean, so I live in in the UK in a, in a sort of farming area. And and so uh, in the fields around where I'm speaking to you from right now are uh, sheep and cows and horses, and because they're right outside my window, of course I have the opportunity to, to observe them. Um, and when you when you observe them, and in particular, if you get to know some of these animals, you realise that they are incredibly sophisticated. You know yeah. that they have very complex mental lives, and they live as you know there are social structures you know so yeah. if you you know there, there are there are you know there are cows that get on well with other cows that have friends within the group you know there are all sorts of different like know, personalities are, right yeah they have personalities right yeah. Yeah. i mean you know any anyone who's watching this show who has you know even a pet right know that you know of course they have you know, personalities right, right. um so you have, you know, seemingly very sophisticated mentality in those cases. And I think the interesting question there is why, you know, it, it's not really, well, how do we know that that that's true? The traditional skeptical question, you know, the more interesting question is, why does it seem so compelling to us and so unavoidable now to attribute fairly mm. sophisticated mentality to a lot of creatures other than human beings? Yeah. Right? And where do we draw the line? Uh, um, between those cases where we are really quite comfortable attributing mentality to, to you know, to more, um, you know, to more problematic cases, right? So, yeah. um, you know, so then you get into questions about, you know, robots and AI and all that. Right, right. right. And of course, these are really interesting questions. Yeah. And real, these are, these are real questions. These are not made up questions for a philosophy class, <laughs> right? These are questions that the answers to which actually are hugely significant, both practically and ethically.
1: Yeah. I, I love that you made that, that point as well, because, um, well, as they get closer to AGI or strong AI, as, as Cyril calls it, um, we're going to have to make some decisions here about turning them off or not turning them off or attributing yeah. human, human rights to them or maybe broadening our category from human to uh, biological or certain uh, level of sentience. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah. No, I, absolutely. I mean, I... I the. I always like to refer people to Locke, actually, in this case. Okay. So, so, so John Locke, English philosopher, uh, 17th century, famously defines a person as a thinking, intelligent being that has reason and reflection mm-hmm. and can consider itself as itself. Yeah. The same thinking being in different times and different places. Now, what's really striking about this definition is that, is that the word human being doesn't figure mm. Right So Locke isn't saying that a person has got to be a human being, yeah what Locke, yeah. Locke's view is that any being that has these mental capacities is a person yeah and 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 therefore has certain to put it crudely certain rights and have certain obligations towards it so so so, so for Locke, if a parrot convinced us that it has these capacities, then a parrot would be a person. Because personhood is up evil. here,
1: yeah. Personhood can be instantiated in human exactly. personhood, but it can be. That that sounds like Peter Strawson as well.
0: Well. Well. Yes. Now. Now. Strawson is interesting on this question because he he um never really addresses the Lockean point in 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 a in a, in a direct way. I mean Strawson. Tends to assume that persons have got to be embodied beings. I think that's okay. the minimal condition. That's so right. Persons have got to have bodies, and that's against it's the Cartesian dualism. Against the Cartesian dualism. Sure. It's sure. not clear yeah. whether he thinks or whether he's committed to the view that um, the bodies have to be human bodies or even animal bodies. Right. So if you think okay. of the movie RoboCop, right? So, yeah. uh, so this guy, you know, his body parts are gradually are, are replaced by you know prosthetics of one sort or another. Right. So is, is is that a person? Right. So, on a, so on a Lockean, from a Lockean perspective, the answer would be plainly yes, right? Because as long as you've got something that has the mental capacities, you've got a person. Yeah. And of course, if you're religious and you believe in God, uh, well, you, you presumably believe God is a person, right? I mean, in traditional Christian theology, God is a person, yeah. but God and is angels, certainly not a human sure. being and not an animal, right? right. And right. not a machine. Right. Right. So, and that's it's something else that was at the back of Locke's mind, right? That he doesn't want to define personhood in a way that limits it to human beings or to any one type of, 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 of creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to me now, and I, and I don't talk about this in the possibility of knowledge, but that seems to me now to be a very uh, important insight. And it's important because it leaves open the possibility that personhood could, in principle, be extended to, for example, dolphins or whales or chimpanzees or, of course, to sophisticated um, robots. There's nothing, there's nothing in the definition that rules that out. The question for Locke would be, do these creatures have these capacities? Are they thinking intelligent beings? Are they self-aware? Do they have the sense of themselves themselves? as existing through through time and in different places if yeah. they have all of those things then you are dealing with a person in those cases
1: yeah and and uh, i haven't got a chance to to look at your book on self-knowledge yet yeah. self-knowledge yeah. for for human persons or for yeah. human beings humans, yeah. Yeah. humans. Um, i'm really excited for that too because i think um that and like the self-awareness kind of uh self-consciousness is such a fascinating and important subject the self-conscious because if a bat's conscious that's really interesting that's cool but i don't think a lot of us would attribute self-consciousness to a bat in that same higher level uh personhood regard
0: yeah so so this is this is a fascinating topic i mean for Locke, self-awareness or self-consciousness is fundamental to personhood yeah it's a very uh, it's a very important element of his definition. And then you get into all sorts of interesting questions about well, okay, but what how sophisticated does the self-awareness need to be? Right. So if you so if you have a cat, right? I mean, so if you have a cat and, and you see the cat in in front of a mirror, right, um I mean it's not clear that the cat recognizes itself right. in the mirror. Right. So 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 in that sense the cat f- fails the mirror test on self-awareness right Mm -hmm. whereas we at a certain age pass that test so um, so that's one element of self-awareness but of course there's a whole lot more to self-awareness and going back to Kant of course in the critique of pure reason one that you know the central part the central chapter of the critique of pure reason the transcendental deduction of the categories is a chapter in which he essentially develops a theory of self-awareness a kind of an account of what it is to be aware of oneself in this in this uh, in this sense and, and, and Kant has a very demanding view of self-awareness on which you know non-human animals are not going to come out as self-aware in his sense
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but that might just be a reason for rejecting Kant's account or just pointing out how restricted it is and saying, well actually if you're thinking about morally significant self-awareness we don't need or shouldn't restrict it to the sorts of things that Kant is talking about
1: yeah, and and we're downstream from him, so we have lots more to go on. We have him to go on. We can stand on his shoulders, even as we have empirical evidence that's that's brand new to us about octopi and or octopuses. Yeah. I don't know the
0: plural of them, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. So, so we, you know, we should we should bear in mind what we know now, which Kant didn't know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is a hell of a lot. <laughs>
1: that's you know,
0: right. And this, and this, you know, this has a huge bearing on how we think about all sorts of. Um, all sorts of philosophical issues so so i mean just as you know just to kind of go back to the to the question that you asked about the problem of other minds mm-hmm. um i guess what i'm saying is that i'm not really you know this is speaking for myself i'm just not exercised by the problem of other minds
1: mm-hmm.
0: in the form that philosophers traditionally have, have been worrying about which is yeah. about you know other human beings i think there is a problem of other minds but it's a problem that um, I, di- I just don't have any concerns about whether you have a mind. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm very, very, very confident that you do. Yeah, I probably you know, have qual- qualia experiences and, and such. Yeah, and you know, you have thoughts and fears and ambitions and hopes and you know um, all this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know you that well, but I, I, I would be willing to bet a hell of a lot of money yeah. on all of those things being true of you. Just as I'm sure you would bet. A lot of money on those things being true of me, so I just don't think that this is stuff that we should we should you know be concerned about. But if somebody asks me about you know, well, what do we know about the mind of an octopus? Right? Should we be eating these creatures? Well, those are those are really good questions. Right? Yeah. And and in fact, the, the the most recent evidence I've seen suggests that these are unbelievably sophisticated creatures with highly sophisticated mentality that's yeah. very different from ours.
1: Yeah, likewise with like cuttlefish, and you see the the patterns that they display, and it looks like an alien creature. Um, Yeah. So the the capacities view, I I really want to go in for, but it it freaks me out a little bit because, as you said, there's a certain point um, before which the human baby or the human child will not pass the mirror test. And I don't want to say that that's less of a, a person, Maybe it is, and maybe they still have human rights, even though they mm. they're not quite a person yet. And like you said, also there's other conditions that are that that need to be met for personhood, not just yeah. the awareness thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a great, that's a really great point. I mean, it, 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 it suggests that Locke's conditions are in in one sense too demanding. I mean, mm-hmm. Locke is really interesting because in a way he's very charitable, right? So he's charitable in the sense that he allows he allows non humans to count right. as persons, right? right? Um, but in another way, he's very uncharitable because it looks as though on Locke's view not all humans are going to count as persons. Right. right. So right. a newborn baby uh, is not yet a thinking intelligent being that has reason and reflection and self-awareness, so that's not a person. Right. Or if you think of someone at the, at the opposite end of life, someone with in, an, in advanced dementia or someone in a uh, you know in, um in a coma, irreversible coma, um <clears throat> that doesn't seem to be a person by Locke's definition so Locke is going to have to do a bit of fancy footwork to deal with those examples right so so they might say well look in the case of a in the case of a baby um it's the fact that it has the capacity to develop these capacities um that makes it a person and in the case potential yeah yeah so there's potentiality Mm -hmm. um um whereas uh, the person at the end of life is still a person because they had those capacities and they just you know happen to have to have lost them. And then the worry is, well, isn't this now all a bit ad hoc? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so maybe that's a worry. Maybe it's, it's not a worry. And of course, you know, certainly if you're thinking about all these debates in the U S about uh, abortion, for yep. example, you know, uh, is the fetus a person? Uh, well, no, not by locks lights. Mm-hmm. The fetus is a human, but not a, not, a, not a person because it doesn't have these, capacities but again you could run the same line right which is that it's 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 a it's a creature it's a being such that in the normal course of events it will develop these capacities right right? um so there are there are various sort of adjustments that you can um you can make to Locke's account of personhood which continue to place mental capacities at the center of personhood Um, but without, without having these rather uncomfortable conclusions about, you know, um, vast numbers of human beings not being persons.
1: Yeah. So, um, so this, uh, the problem of other minds is really interesting. I think that the the philosophical zombie case, I'm not worried about it, but I think it is, it it may, may be interesting as an argument against like, uh, certain types of, uh, philosophy of mind, Uh, um, uh, conceptions of philosophy of mind, like m- machine functionalism or, or something yeah. like that identity theory, maybe Um, do you just, just a, a couple of random questions for you here as we close up. Um, What do you make of, of like machine machine functionalism and, and strong AI or AGI? Do you think that that's uh, I, I, I think it's probably logically possible, but do you think that it's uh, metaphysically possible? Do you think it's going to happen that robots will have a first person perspective like us?
0: Um, I, I just don't know. I mean, I yeah. don't. I don't see. I don't see a, a reason to rule it out at some okay. point in the future. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think it's just one of these things that you know, time will tell.
1: Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh when it, I'm, I'm used to the language of uh, of analogy, um, when it, So I think of like Alvin planning as God and other minds when he's thinking about other minds, he he says, well, I'm drawing a, I'm making an argument by analogy from my own first person perspective to someone else. Is that what you're getting at with the, uh, when you describe the inferential model, is that the same kind of thing, an argument by analogy or something different?
0: It doesn't, I think it's something different. I mean, so, so if I, if I infer that you have a mind on the basis of uh, the fact that you have a, um, a nervous system and a brain that is the oh, yeah, appropriate sure. dimensions then that's not an that's not an argument by analogy right but it's still sure. inference to the best it's still in inference to the best explanation right? so okay um I, I, I think the inference to the best explanation is prob is is in a way the you know the most fundamental i mean if somebody you know, if, you know in, in the real world if somebody actually challenges you right, about about these sorts of issues i don't know what you know, what more you could do other than to point out, look, we're dealing with a human being here. We're dealing with a human animal. We're dealing with something that has the right kind of brain, the right kind of central nervous system that has the right kind of sensory apparatus. Yeah. So why, why are you worrying about whether this thing actually has a mind, right? What's the worry? What's the concern?
1: I think that's a great point. So I was, I think it's Peter Lipton wrote the uh, book on inference, the best explanation. And when in reading that, I just, it was so, uh, apparent to me that this is what we do all the time if i look in the yeah. fridge and i don't see a piece of pizza that i yeah. was expecting to see i'm going to infer yeah. that probably my wife ate it and not that a yeah. philosophical zombie came and ate it but didn't have any absolutely. quality experience absolutely. of
0: it right. yeah yeah absolutely Lip- lipton and i were briefly colleagues in in Cambridge, oh, wow. now dead and he was he's a, he's a lovely man i mean a yeah. really a really cool guy and and you're right i mean this stuff is is, is really really good and really important and you know under uh, underappreciated i think
1: yeah um and so so one last thing because we we did mention the cogito um i think it's like adrian barden maybe says that the cogito is a successful um uh transcend world-directed transcendental argument so kind of yeah. he says it evades uh stroud's critique uh yeah. or, or bifurcation there any yeah. any thoughts on the cogito is it a successful transcendental argument um it,
0: it, well i think it is but it doesn't tell us that much i mean right. it, you know, so yes, in order, in order for me to think, I must exist. Um, so my, so you know, so that seems right. But, but of course, what Descartes was interested in was was you know, the nature of my existence. What kind of thing am I? And sure. and, and, uh, and I don't think you can establish. Um, you can establish what Descartes thought he could establish by yeah. by, by by the cogito argument.
1: Like sub- he was he was getting at substance dualism. That he's a yeah. essentially yeah. a thinking substance.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So the eye, so the eye is, is 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 immaterial and independent of the body, and so on and so forth. Well, you can't establish any of that using yeah. this um, this mode of this mode of argumentation. But I think I think the uh, uh, the, the the thing about the cogito is interesting because it's it doesn't really get mentioned that much, <clears throat> at least as, as far as I know, in the literature on transcendental arguments. But it's right. very kind of obvious one
1: to go for right <laughs> i think so it's the most immediate one as well like yeah. I'm, I'm right yeah. here thinking i'm doing this stuff and i think yeah. it i think it is successful because i really like transcendental arguments not that i think there's a bunch of successful ones i just think it's super mm. interesting and and mm. your work as well these kind of things pos, how possible questions are the most fascinating to me yeah uh, yeah but yeah like uh, people kind of just concede that stroud um uh, just, I think Robert Stern's kind of been beat down by him over the years, and he's kind of mm-hmm. he was kind of the flag bearer, and everyone's like, okay, well, you know, uh, Strawson was wrong, and and Stern is now with his tail between his legs. So Stroud won, but then you know, along comes uh, Adrian Barden. And he says, well, wait a second, you know, like, Descartes was here the whole time, and that seems successful, but again, yeah. people wave that one away, and they say uh, it's totally fallacious and it's bad reasoning.
0: Yeah, well, so I think there are two there are two issues. I mean, one is whether it's fallacious or not, and the other is whether it establishes substantive conclusions. So I think sure. I think the critic of transcendental arguments might say, well, even if this argument works, it doesn't establish anything substantive. It establishes sure. that I exist, but it doesn't tell us anything about the nature of this I. Whereas transcendental arguments are attempts to establish substantive conclusions about mm. reality by reflecting on the necessary conditions for the possibility of experience. And that's something that Descartes has not done and which can't sure. be done. So that would that's I think what you would you would say if you're trying to respond to this style of argumentation.
1: Okay. See that's why I like you as a thinker so much because That's that was so clear. That seems so right that you're it doesn't seem like you have an axe to grind. You're just looking at it and you're saying, hey, these guys, not quite these guys. I I really appreciate that. That's what I love about this book. That's why I made you talk about this one. Um, Dr. Kassam, uh, as we close up here, you have a new book coming out. Can you uh, quickly pitch that and where, where people might be able to find that?
0: Yeah. So my philosophical interests have changed completely. I now do much more applied philosophy. And my new book is called Extremism, a philosophical analysis. Uh, and it's going to be published in September this this year, and it's it's an attempt at, to use my my sort of philosophical thinking to to address a real world immediate urgent problem. Well, what is extremism? Is it a bad thing? What do we do about it? Why do people become extremists? Um, so it's a combination of philosophy, politics, and and psychology, I guess. Yeah. So right. September, and uh, uh, I think it's on Amazon as we speak.
1: Okay. Awesome. And uh, you've also done recent work on conspiracy theories. And so yeah. uh, you're, you're kind of someone that I like to point to when people say, hey, you're talking about philosophical zombies and other minds and all this. That's what philosophy is. And you go, well, wait a second, you know, Dr. Kassam here is working on immediate stuff that could impact your life today about terrorism or your your yeah. grandma or your aunt at the at the party talking about conspiracy theories. So I, I do yeah. appreciate that you're able to do both.
0: Well, it, I, I mean, I think that I... Did a lot of a lot of very abstract theoretical philosophy when I when I started out. But as I as I get older, I, f- I, I, I feel greater and greater urgency to, to apply whatever skills I have to, you know, to real world immediate pressing uh, pressing problems. Yeah. And, and that's what I you know intend to do for the rest of my career, I guess. Yeah. Well, awesome. Uh,
1: thanks again for all of your time. Um, this uh, conversation could go forever. The book is fantastic. Again, I really recommend it, even though it's it's older now, it's still fantastic. Uh, the Possibility of Knowledge by Dr. Kasim Kassam. It's an Oxford book. And uh, hopefully we can we can have him back on. We can talk about more of his work. He's had a bunch of work, uh, which I find fascinating. But for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.